like you to turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. I'm going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. And while you're finding that, let me tell you a story about how I grew up. I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. We were kind of in an urban neighborhood, um, but there were houses and they had small yards and they were close together. And I remember I was five years old. My dad had built a patio on the back of the house and it was kind of neat. There was a concrete floor and it was a great place. He made a special place for me to play with my, my toys. I was an only child, spoiled rotten for those of you who know me, the, uh, uh, and, and looking for company from time to time. But I, I was out there playing one day and at the back fence, our, our yard abutted up against another yard. There was a little guy standing at the fence, one of those wire fences just had his hands on him. He's looking at me and kind of waving once he saw I saw him. And, and I said, hey, Dad, who is that? And he said, well, let me go see. And so Dad walked over to the fence, and apparently that guy's dad was over near the yard. And he said, can you come over and play with my boy for a while? And uh, got permission, and he picked this guy up and brought him over and sat down, and the guy's name was Sammy. Was Sammy, and it turned out to be my best friend. He was a little unusual, kind of hard to get along with at first, because Sammy's idea of playing, and this probably because we were both only children, we kind of kind of made up our own rules as we went along, was for him to play with my toys and me to watch him. And he would say, I'll play with the toys, and you watch me, and that'll be fun. And so I wasn't quite sure how I felt about him, but he grew up to be my best friend. We were close as brothers. Uh, we went through our early teen years together, um, we went through high school together. We went to a different school. And we entered that age where you start having these questions and trying to ponder the meaning of life. And we spent a lot of late nights in our late teens sitting up wee, into the wee hours in the morning uh, discussing the, the profundity of life. And, and we would ask this question of ourselves, why are we here? Why are we here? And we had all these plans and all these dreams and all these great things we were going to do, and which usually involved, for some reason, going to California. Uh, that, that was the big thing in Ohio. If you get out to California, you kind of really made it. And uh, Sammy was just so close to me. We, we kind of drifted apart. Um, but I'll get back to that a little bit later. I want to talk to you about Zephaniah. Uh, here we are. We're in the Old Testament, and we're, we're trying to see what we can learn in the Old Testament about the character and nature of God. And what we can learn about his plan for redeeming his children. And here's what we've learned from Zephaniah so far. Uh, there, number one, there are earthly consequences for our sin. Uh, not eternal consequences, but there are consequences for those sins that we commit subsequent to our salvation. We are responsible for the things we do. We're accountable for the things we say. Not to our condemnation, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if you're here today and you know Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then no condemnation will fall on you. But we will, at times, suffer the consequences of our actions. This is why sometimes Christians end up in jail. They do something uh, against the law and they get arrested and, and they end up in jail and they have a record. That doesn't have an impact on their eternal destination, but it does have an impact on the time they spend here. So there are earthly consequences for our sin. Uh, we find out that everyone 
is subject to the wrath of God. Now, Zephaniah is all about, the first two and a half chapters are all about the wrath of God falling down on a fallen world, and it's dark. Um, and we, what we find out is that God will vent his wrath on everybody, uh, and the good news on that one is that if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, that Jesus Christ absorbed that wrath for you in your place. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, then you will become the subject of that wrath. So the only way out is to, to uh, confess your sins to Jesus Christ as Savior, confess that he's, he's Lord and the only Son of God, because everybody is subject to his wrath. So we found out that God blesses humility, that he's looking for people to humble themselves and surrender themselves completely to him. And this is particularly significant for Zephaniah because at this point, Judah is surrounded by these proud and arrogant nations that are kind of thumbing their nose at God. So God wants to humble people. We learned finally two weeks ago that we have to wait upon the Lord. And there are a lot of reasons we have to wait upon the Lord, but we have to have some patience waiting for God's plan to work out. But the big question is, what do we do while we're waiting? Well, we have a charge. We are, we are charged with preaching and living the gospel. Now, that's a two-stage charge. Uh, we're told to proclaim the gospel. We're told to go out and share the gospel with people. But we can't just be hearers of the word. We can't just be speakers of the word. We also have to be doers of the word. So the gospel has to have some impact on the way we live our lives. So we, know we don't just share the gospel. We have to live up to the gospel as well. Now, again, that's not to our condemnation. But in, in all reality understanding that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior should have an impact on how we live and how we relate to the people around us. So we are, we are exemplars. We are displayers of the gospel. So today, today we're going to get another lesson about who God is and how he relates to his creation. He relates to us. And we're going to answer that ancient question that Sam and I used to ask, one that's kind of haunted humankind since the beginning of creation. Why am I here? Why am I here? And this is a beautiful thing because uh, Zephaniah is coming to a crescendo in his ministry. There's been a number of questions asked, and he's going to provide us the answers between these few short verses and the ones that follow. We'll follow up on it again next week. But the answer to why am I here is going to tell us why there are earthly consequences for our sin. It's going to tell us why everyone is subject to the wrath of God. It's going to tell us why God blesses humility and why we are to wait diligently. And so, and we do wait diligently, but we wait actively because God is going to come, return, and take us home. Jesus Christ is going to take us to the place that he's prepared for us. So I'm calling this sermon a call to worship. There's a hint. It's the answer of these questions. So uh, all these things are going to show up in our passage today, which describes three ways that we relate to God. Three ways that it describes three facets of our relationship to God. And here they are. We're going to see our call. The call is placed upon those who follow him in verse 9. We will see who is called in verse 10. And then we'll see what we're called to in verses 11 through 13. So let's take a look at this call that is upon God's people, what God calls his people to do. 
And so we have to understand that in the first part of chapter 3, so that we get the context here, that God foretells of this judgment that's going to fall on the nations, and uh, which was not surprising because they were oppressing the people of Judah. The northern kingdoms carried off by Assyria. They're scattered. They're all over the place. And all that's left is the southern kingdom. Judah and Benjamin are there. Uh, we're calling it Judah. And uh, God is going to pass judgment on these nations that have come against his people. Now, it was no surprise to the Judeans, but it, what was a little bit of a surprise that God is going to allow that judgment to fall on his people as well, on Judah as well. And so, see, that's been the whole thing of, that we've seen in Ze- uh, Zephaniah, is that this is about the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming. It's a dark day. It's a, it's a day of wrath. It's a day of punishment. Uh, God is going to... Bring, vent his wrath upon Judah because they have strayed away from him. They've turned his back after all the blessings they got, even after they're spared of this invasion of the northern kingdom, they have neglected God. They're worshiping other gods, idols. They're doing all sorts of things. So there's coming this day of punishment. And up until now, it has sounded pretty bad. But Zephaniah is about to bring hope into this picture. He's about to bring a little bit of light to the end of the tunnel and about to give us the same hope as well. So, in speaking of this day of the Lord, in verse 9, uh, God says through Zephaniah, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Now, this kind of makes sense to us. We know that, that God is about transforming his people, that we're all going through some changes, but the phrasing here would have particular significance to the people of Judah. Uh, And so the NIV translate this verse as, then I will purify the lips of the peoples. And that's a pretty good translation as well. But let me explain why this is particularly significant. There were a a variety of Mesopotamian rituals that speak of purifying the lips. And the idea was this, the Mesopotamians, this is Persia we're talking about, that whole area in the Mideast, thought that if you were going to go before the heavenly council, whatever they thought that heavenly council was, that you would have to be purified first. And the purification would start with the lips because whatever purified the lips would eventually go into the body as well. So when they talk about purifying the lips, they were talking about total purification. They're talking about purifying the entire being. And that's what the Jews would have heard here. This purity is necessary if they're going to appear before this heavenly council. And so what we're hearing here is that God is going to purify the speech of his people. What the false gods could not do, God is actually going to do. He's going to bring purity to his speech. In other words, he's going to make his people 100% pure. It's a guarantee that they are going to be ultimately perfected, ultimately changed into a pure relationship with him. Now, we kind of saw that process in Isaiah in chapter 6. It's a a passage that we're familiar with. Uh, So Isaiah gets a peek into the throne room of God. It's awesome. There's fire burning and smoke and all sorts of neat stuff going on. And Isaiah is humbled, and it says in chapter 6 of Isaiah, starting in verse 5, and I said, Isaiah is speaking here, Woe is me, for I'm lost, and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King 
the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's looked into the throne room. And what he doesn't see in that throne room is a big, cuddly, fluffy God. Isaiah's not running and jumping into his lap. Isaiah, in looking at God and seeing how holy God is and how pure God is, understands that he's not. He's neither holy nor pure. He begins to understand his need for being purified. He begins to understand the necessity of him being sanctified if he's even going to be in the presence of this God. What was he going to do? He's not pure. He's tainted. In verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, verse 7, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's lips are purified by this heavenly being. Isaiah lived in the same contemporary culture that Zephaniah did. And the picture that we get is Isaiah, starting with his mouth and his speech, becomes purified by an act of God. All of Isaiah was made pure. So God is going to do the same thing for his people. Now, why would he do that? You know, if we're going to look at contemporary psychobabble, sometimes mixed with a a measure of Christianity, uh, people would tell us that God is going to refine us, that God is going to purify us to make us better people. Or maybe they might tell us that he's going to do this to make us richer people. Or maybe he's going to do this to make us healthier people. Now, God can certainly do all those things, and he certainly does those things for some folks. But the real reason that God is going to purify his people is right there in the second half of verse 9 in Zephaniah 3. He says this, He's going to purify them that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. God is going to purify his people so that they can call upon his name. Now, there's another phrase. You know, I I enjoy praying. I enjoy hearing the body of Christ call upon his name. Uh, But this is a little bit more involved than just pronouncing the name of Jesus Christ, just pronouncing the name of God. Uh, Again, culturally, what they would have heard is that this is a surrender. This is a total submission to what what it means to to call upon the name of God is to, to leave yourself completely in his care, to trust him to turn completely towards him. We see it the first time in Genesis chapter 4 with Seth. Uh, Verse 26 says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now we also see the same phrase in 1 Chronicles 16. We see it in Psalms 105 and Isaiah 12. And they all refer to this, this plaintive cry to the Lord. This plea to the Lord, the emptying of of the hearts of the people that are calling them. There's repentance. There is an expression of humility here. There's a confession of our need to be made holy, the confession of our need to be saved. It's not just mentioning his name. It's not just putting uh, in the name of Jesus Christ at the end of our prayer. It's a plea to the character and nature of what God is. It's a total submission to being molded and shaped in his image. 
being influenced by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just calling out his name. It's a total surrender to him. So he's going to purify his people so that they can submit to him and so that they can serve him. Now, again, the serve word here is is just pregnant with possibilities here because a strict translation is that they will not only serve him, but they will worship him. So they're going to work with him and on his behalf. Their efforts are going to be towards bringing people towards God, towards being an expression of who he is, and, and in worship and in proclaiming his excellencies, in proclaiming his attributes. Uh, again, we saw this early in the biblical narrative. It appears in Exodus 10, uh, verse 26, where Moses has his confrontation with Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh's beginning to buckle a little bit. And Moses says, you know, goes in and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, well, you know what? You can go, but only the men. You've got to leave all of your livestock and all of your women here. And Moses' response to Pharaoh is in verse 26 of Exodus 10. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God. And what Moses goes on to describe is an act of worship. They're going to be the sacrifices. They're going to be the ultimate submission to the Lord and the ultimate worship to, God, to, to the Lord as well. So we see that in Numbers 8 and Joshua 24. As a matter of fact, it's in Joshua 24 three times. You can look that up after lunch. So God's going to purify his people. And he's going to do it so that they will call on him, serve him, and worship him. And, and not only are they going to, to call on him and serve him and worship him, but they're going to do it in one accord. Now, again, the NIV says they're going to do it shoulder to shoulder. That's a bit more descriptive of what we're supposed to see here. They're shoulder to shoulder. They're standing as one person. They're facing in the same direction. They're moving in the same direction. They're working at the same goal, and that goal is to elevate God, to to worship Him with all they have. So they're doing this in absolute unity. God says He's going to purify His people so that they will worship Him and serve Him in unity. Later on, we'll find that that is as one. Now, you see what happens when God begins moving amongst his people is they start moving in the same direction. They start facing, they start working shoulder to shoulder in contact with each other, doing what God has called them to do. We saw that happen down at Stories in the Park. You know, we're in our third year. We had more volunteers than we've ever had. Everybody was working together. There was such an incredible sense of unity down there in the park. And it wasn't just us. It was, it was the other three churches that are associated with us in the Warrington Gospel Partnership. But there were so many folks from WBF there, too. We answered the call. And the net result of that is we find out that there's at least nine girls that haven't heard the gospel before. So we're out there not just telling them the gospel, but brothers and sisters, we're showing it to them. We're standing shoulder to shoulder. We're doing what God has called us to do as one, setting our differences aside and moving towards being proclaimers of the gospel and livers of the gospel as well. I might have to rethink that last phrase. 
<laughs> so, so God is doing all this to purify his people. Now, again, let's put it in perspective with what's been going in Zephaniah. Because there's, there's a life lesson in here. Because all of this chastisement that we've seen for two and a half chapters, all of the wrath that is being vented for the last two and a half chapters, all the punishment we've seen is, is to, has been to refine God's people, has been to purify God's people, has been to draw God's people closer to him. Now, that should say something to us that's really important. Because God does not intend whatever we're going through, whatever you're walking through right now, God is not punishing you. God isn't mad at you. We hear this from time to time. I've done something wrong. God is punishing me. I had somebody tell me that God had punished them by sending them to Warrington because they just couldn't stand the people here. And I'm like, gosh, I, you know, when he looks at me, he thinks I'm his punishment. <laughs> okay, so... God doesn't want to punish those who believe in him. That's what's happening to Judah. God wants Judah to turn around and turn their face back towards him. He's trying to draw them closer. He's trying to make them holy. He's trying to purify them. And the same thing goes for us. Whatever trials we're going through, God isn't inflicting pain upon us because we've done something wrong. He's, he's allowing us to go through these trials so that we'll turn towards him and depend on him and trust him more than we had been previously. So there's the life lesson in the overall structure of Zephaniah. What he wants is for people to come closer to him. Now, that should lead us to a question. I mean, we've seen the call. We've, we've, seen, we've seen how God works this out. Well, who, who, who is called? I think the answer is going to be a little surprising. It's in verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, those people who call upon his name, those people who serve him and worship him, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. Now, again, the phrasing here, it, you know, it, we live in a world that's connected instantaneously by the internet. Uh, we know more about our environment than any other generation has ever known. Um, so we could lose some of the meaning here. When he talks about being beyond the, the rivers of Cush, he's talking about being beyond the known borders of the world. So he's saying that those who are receiving this call, those who are going to respond to this call, come from everywhere. They come from everywhere. People, everywhere that people are scattered, there are going to be people who respond to this call. All peoples. Now listen very carefully, because we're not talking about everyone. We found out in chapter 2 that even the pagan nations, once they suffer the wrath of God, that God will preserve a remnant of those pagan nations unto himself. So what Revelation says about this is that God's people will come from every tribe and every tongue. So we're talking about peoples, groups from all over the world will have people that become part of God's kingdom. So that means that God calls everyone. 
Now again, we need to think about this because it has an implication on how we walk through our day. So if you are one of God's people and you are charged with calling upon his name, serving him, and worshiping him, you're charged with naming him the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior by serving him, doing the things he's called us to do. We already know what he's called us to do, which is to take the gospel to those who haven't heard it, and by worshiping him, then we are to take the gospel to everyone. Let that sink in for a second. Everyone is our mission field. That means every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. There's nobody that we are not called to be witnesses to. Now, that'll have a huge impact on how you express your politics throughout the day. It'll have a huge impact on how you look at people who disagree with you politically. It'll have a huge impact on how you look at people that live in regions that are traditionally labeled as evil. They may be evil, but they're the mission field. Everybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is the mission field. And that's going to require a little bit of an adjustment in our thinking. Because we have been bifurcated and divided by so many petty issues. And we allow ourselves to get pushed off on one side or pushed off on another side and forget that we're here to be purveyors of the gospel. beyond the rivers of Cush, all the known world. So what we're finding out is the nations are going to be converted. Not all of them. You know, again, chapter 2, a remnant of every nation. And that eventually, on this day of the Lord, that is so dark and violent, that that remnant is going to come together in unity to worship God. Wow. So we know what the call is. We know who's called. Well, what are we called to do? Verses 11 through 13. On that day, the day of the Lord, you, plural, all those who are in him, all those who belong to him, those who are not subject to the wrath, They shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. And what we see right there is that there's going to be no shame for the things that they've done. Uh, Again, the past isn't going to be held against us. God's not waiting at the gate. You know, I love this picture of, of heaven with Peter standing at the gate. You know, traditionally, he's the one who stands at the gate. He's got a clipboard. And there are a lot of us that think that there's a series of questions there on the clipboard. And then we've got to pass a test before we get in. And, and there are those who have been raised to think that somehow you can offend God and be excluded from heaven. There are those who believe that if you haven't confessed all of your sins, somehow you're not going to be allowed in. So Zephaniah has some encouragement to us. You know, there's not going to be some cosmic trick 
played on us. God's not going to stand there and go, well, I don't know. You know, you live pretty good, and you did a nice job and everything, but, you know, you stole that penny candy when you were three years old. And you never repented from that, so, no, you can't come in. I only need perfect people. Zephaniah tells us that all those things, if we have confessed Jesus Christ as Savior, all those things are not held against us shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. But he also has a warning for those who have rejected him for the next portion of the verse here. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And these are the ones that are arrogant. These are the ones that have found other gods. These are the ones that have proclaimed themselves to be gods. They're so self-consumed with pride and self-righteousness that they've rejected God. And you shall no longer be haughty on my holy mountain. So those who reject him are gone. Those who accept him, their pasts are forgiven. And they are going to be free from pride and what they call haughtiness. Verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So we're called, again, to humble ourselves. We're called to seek refuge. You know, this is... When the Jew heard seek refuge, the picture he would get in his mind is finding the shade of a tree on a hot day, finding a place of comfort, finding a place of safety, finding a place of trust, finding a place of rest, finding a place of refreshment. And what we find our place of trust and refreshment in in is the name of the Lord. And, And again, it's not just the name he has, but it's who he is and how he functions. Verse 13 says, Those who are left, the remnant in Israel, they shall do no injustice, they shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for there shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now, what he says here in 13 is for those who are in the Lord are going to be conformed to his image. I mean, he, destri- he describes the attributes of God here. He said that they shall do no injustice. They shall be just. They shall speak no lies. They shall speak truth. Not, not be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. They will be faithful and trustworthy. Those are all the things that God are, is. And they'll graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid, no longer living in fear, living in complete trust and security in the Father in heaven. So, Zephaniah has described a relationship with God in three ways. We've seen this call, the call to call upon his name, to serve him and worship him. We've seen who's called. Everybody is called. Not everybody's going to respond, but everybody is called. And we've seen what we're called to. We're called to become like him. So, How does this answer the question 
of why we're here. It, it's right there in the passage. You see, all of this doom and destruction, everything that we've seen here, all of these questions that have, have been answered, um, there are earthly consequences for our sin because we're, we're called to be like him. There are, everyone is subject to the wrath of God because God vents his wrath on all sin, and the only escape to that is to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. God blesses humility because pride separates us from our Father. And if we're going to be made like him, then we're going to have to humble ourselves and depend on him. And we wait diligently for him because God has a plan, and he works it out in his timing. So ultimately, why we're here is, is to serve and worship God. He purifies us so that we can be drawn closer to him and be made like him. And our outward expression of that is to do the things he tells us to do and to worship him in submission and humility and obedience. So I drifted away from my friend Sammy for about 20 years. Sammy turned 43. I always knew when his birthday was. I'd sent him a note. And he sent me a note. He said, I miss my big brother. Can you come and see me? I said, sure. He lived in Youngstown. I went back to Youngstown. I lived in a different neighborhood, but it's kind of the same thing. Houses are close together, small front yard, small backyard. We sat on his porch and we reminisced. And he said, John, I've got a terminal muscular neuro problem. The doctors have given me two or three years to live. And that, it just broke my heart. You think about the years you missed and that sort of thing. And then he looked at me and said, did you ever get the answer? I said, to what? He said, why we're here. And I went, I do. I've, I've, I've heard it. So I shared the gospel with him. Sam wouldn't pray with me when I asked him to pray. But I know he heard the answer as to why we were here. And I know that he heard the way to remedy that. He died a year and a half later. Uh, I didn't even get a note for his funeral, so I missed it. But do you see why that answers everything? We're here to serve and worship God. Why that gives us our guidelines for what we're called to do and how we're called to do it. And why that becomes the essence of the gospel. Why it's important that we do things like stories in the park. Why it's important that we do things like reach out to our neighbors that can't help themselves. That's serving God. And then we come together and we worship him. And we come together on Sunday mornings and worship him corporately so that as we walk out of here, we can worship him individually so that people can see that we're being drawn closer to our Father. They were being shaped and molded into his image day by day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to call upon your name. We thank you, Father, for the blessings you give us for those who call upon you. We thank you for the empowerment, Father, to walk in the things that you've called us to do. And we thank you most of all for the opportunity to serve you and worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.